Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 23 podcast. Today's episode is a discussion about topics that were brought up by Brian Cantrell from Oxide Computing, talking about sort of their design motivation and our skepticism about some of the points he was making and what the impacts really are for cloud, distributed compute, um, hardware design, mainframes, uh, cloud repatriation, a whole bunch of topics about next generation thinking in compute infrastructure management and applications. Um, all wrapped around, is hardware going to be innovative and change? So one of my favorite topics. Uh, we also at the end discuss uh, books. We are officially starting our Cloud 2030 book group. I will hope you will join us. We are going to be reading Data Cartels by Sarah Landon first, and then Investments Unlimited uh, by John Willis. He's not the primary author, but John Willis and crew um, uh, about six or eight weeks later. So we are going to be reading these books and then having spirited and lively discussions uh, about them. Uh, if you haven't joined us in the conversation yet, it's a reason to. I will remind you at the end of the show, uh, and you can hear us talking about why uh, we think these books are worth reading at the end. Yeah. Can you give me the pocket version of what Oxide is doing? I mean, I know they've... Oh, that's easy. Yeah. They've built, they've built a kind of a new operating system that's which they tout which is you know based on which is rust built on rust which again is a big he's a big uh <laughs> advocate yeah. cheerleader for rust but he, I'm, he, I'm still... his idea was to do a full reset on on um on uh cloud infrastructure so he he redesigned rack um and there are some things that were really fascinating whether they're how valid they are or not is interesting like he his comment was he read he designed his server chassis around the fan because the fan is the failing part and power hungry and so if you design around the fan then you can opt you he's optimizing the design around the fan um I, I, yeah. I, I mean, okay. I, the, the idea that, I mean, if you're used to servers, you know, 20 years ago, then maybe fans are a problem, but modern servers actually don't run the fans unless they actually need to. And it's sort of a right. silly statement. I think um, it is as well. But so, me, so what he, he, re, he rethought. So basically, he started with a, clean sheet of paper and was trying to redesign servers, redesign servers to operate at rack scale. So integrated switch, integrated DC bus bar, um, you know, uh, new BIOS, right? He's, he's basically saying all of, all of the stuff that we have in servers. And this, this to me is where by telling it as a history, this is the brilliant part and, and part that makes me angry setting it up as history where you're subtly saying look at how stupid we were over and over again it's time for a reset we're going to design it right this time <laughs> um it he he builds to a conclusion that 
I don't think is a valid, right? I, it's it's tasty how, in the moment, but it's not actually a. Uh, yeah. How how does he how does he characterize the the wide variation in? Well, I'll call it the loads, the the nature of the loads being put on these servers um, between, in in particular, kind of the the next generation of, I'll call it virtualization or containerization, whatever. This is like. this is what was amazing about how he structured it, is mm -hmm. he spent more time talking about the fans in his racks. Than what the workloads you run on the the they are. So he's the giveaway for me. That's the giveaway. Yeah. And and so yeah. And the, to me, I'm I'm like the, the reason why hardware is not is very hard to change hardware is because customers have operability challenges of commingling. And it's the reason why ARM and Intel aren't mixed much because ARM is operationally too different than the Intel stuff. Right. And and you know we we're in the business of helping people normalize that, and you know we're you know the the barrier to entry here is not the DC or the fan or firmware, right? I mean that's that's the conceit that I think is like firmware is not bad. It the, you know there's a reason why we haven't re you know actually. We've tried to rewrite firmware from scratch with Eufy, and it's causing all sorts of problems still. It's yeah. been 20 years since that's been out, and it still has issues that are very hard to address and propagate. And those issues are not because the designers or authors are dumb. <laughs> it's true. The, um, I, I, you know, just to put, put that issue in perspective a bit, um, compare what a server has to do and the place where it gets, you know, exercised uh, when it's dealing with a bunch, with literally thousands of endpoints from a bunch of 5G phones out there in the world. And it's, yeah. um, you know, each, <laughs> each one of these, these little puppies, you know, generally it represents a, you know, a couple hundred of endpoints being managed simultaneously. Yes. And then put that on the other side, um, on the other side, you know, dealing with as a as a general processing unit or or even a you know a graphic, you know, a GPU dealing with some of these in you know incredibly difficult um basically mapped out and and fra and fragmented you know machine learning machine learning processes i'm sorry you know getting on the fan you know getting onto the <laughs> fan and, and and the bus just okay you know great well even 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 on the bus we've got really interesting tech coming with um um oh. The, the server interlink stuff, SLX or whatever it's, yes. Um, right. And longer term, another thing that we're getting, we're going to be getting is the, the new semiconductors, the new semiconductor technologies that are being, that are being dis discovered and used 
that can uh, be uh, created and operate at much lower, much lower, much more manageable temperatures and under less pressure. So if you, I don't know if you've seen some of it, but there's mm, some no, really new. There's some really interesting work that's being done. I think I saw it out of the University of Rochester, maybe. Um, in any case, what they've been able to, what they are doing is actually discovering the the recipe for creating some really interesting um, semiconductor materials, superconductor materials, I should say, um, that can be uh, that can operate at uh, temperatures that are closer to kind of room temperature and can operate and be put in place um, with pressure, pressurization that um, is like at least one and they're they're shooting for two orders of magnitude lower meaning that you've got a lot more you've got lossless you've got lossless interconnection in in the machines um you've got the the possibility of power of you know of power generation power transmission um in the data center a lot you know a lot more easily and there's some there's some real thought that that's going to make a difference so that would be amazing. You know, once okay. again, getting getting hung up on fan on on fans gets gets a little <laughs> bit weird. Well, that's it. the thing that makes me sad, and I, I I don't know how to get just have the conversation more generally. Is you know there there is a really good conversation about you know what does make the hyperscalers, um. And we're Joanne. We're having a conversation about the talk I heard uh, by uh, Brian Cantrell from Oxide. Okay. Um, where he was um, sort of the core idea. One of the core ideas he had um, was that the hyperscalers are actually much more profitable than people believe. There's a mythology around them, you know, being a low margin business when they're not. Um, sure. But his 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 premise was sort of that the hardware that, that the hardware is they're designed specialized hardware and that's their advantage um but um i you know i'm not as i'm i'm i don't feel like he made that point in the talk um and rich there, is talking yeah sorry i i, so, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow um okay. they have for five years at least been very big buyers of specialized ASICs and FPGAs all over the place. Mm-hmm. Where they get them from, you wouldn't be happy about, but there a lot of them are uh, TSMC, a lot of them are gray market, a lot of them mm-hmm. came directly from NVIDIA labs in terms of what they were trying to achieve. Like, you know, we went, here's our MVP for this level now we're going to go for the big kahuna and bring it to market but we'll sell off all those you know custom run chips that we made before to all the hyperscalers right 
So do you actually, uh, this is fascinating. Do you think that, that the, F, and this was one of Brian's points, although he didn't, he described it, but he didn't really land it. Um, which was, which was my, my frustration. He spent a lot of time telling cute stories and not a lot of time connecting the dots, mm. but um, the, is there a necessary component to next generation servers that include FPGAs or is that something that will be ultimately baked into the um, hardware designs? The next generation, I would say yes for FPGA. The generation after that, no, it'll be baked in because they still haven't gotten right. the you know, um, from the manufacturing perspective, you still have issues with tin whiskers. You still have wish issues with the different kinds of the boards, right? The silica and everything mm -hmm. that goes along with it. Intel is doing a lot of research. To your point, Rich, I don't know exactly what you were talking about because I came in midstream. But if it was about materials and coatings on fans, yes. No, there's a not, not on not on fans. It was uh, it was Rob's. Uh, <laughs> comment about Brian's reflection, reflection that Brian was was obsessed with building his next generation server tech, uh, hardware around uh, fans and the fact that you know fans are the are the big in his view the big source of failure and and issues power, of, you know yeah. in of power in the in the data center yeah exactly um, yeah. yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> Okay, so, so, so that's not what's keeping okay, people the from buying that I it equipment. <laughs> well, the material, the material science, no, the material science stuff that I was referring to was, this, and I just put a, a link in the in the right. comments. Um, there's reason to think that superconduction at room temperature with manageable pressures is, you know, kind of within rock throwing distance. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. I saw those chips and some of those early, early versions of um, of the superconducting computers, as I call them, um, at, in the UK at, I think it was University of Gloucester. And I also saw them at the Albany Design Center. If you ever have an opportunity, by the way, to go to the University of Albany, they have like a 10 million square foot lab and it's divided by different companies. And it's the most incredible thing to walk through where you can get permission to do it because you see everything from coatings and, and graphene to new designs for, uh, you know, like forget about copper wiring or anything even close. They're using fiber optic. They're doing all the cooling stuff. It's really, really interesting to see. But the mm -hmm. most spectacular thing I saw was this early, early generation of call them GPU specialized chips that are like, I don't know, take take a fingernail and divide it in 10. And it's like a pinpoint. It's so tiny. Wow. And they're using them for all sorts of microcomputing and nanocomputing. Mm. Wow. And my my view is that the next gen or not the next gen but the gen after the gpus the fpgas and the asics will all be nano 
So you can get a board this big. Pardon? Does that mean Uh, that that there are a lot more smaller, like like if that's the case, then what you're talking about is fleets of small devices rather than, um, right? Yeah, but but think about the cooling and the temperature. Yeah, yeah. You won't need you won't need the big fan. You won't need the big, you know. Um, well, yeah. The the thing that the thing that's filled with that, liquid coolant. The thing that would is amazing to me, and this is funny because it's it's like literally the counter direction from where where Brian was setting up, which was going to rack scale architectures and buying bigger units of gear. What you're describing is your your scaling pattern is in in the in the tens of dollars, not in right. the millions of dollars. Correct. Um, and I think that that is going to just, that makes more sense ultimately. Yeah. Right. So maybe I should have given the talk. I would have loved <laughs> to hear your version of it. I think it, I would have gotten a lot more out of it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, uh, no, I, I, um, I see, you know, remember coming from that industry and watching those things being made and working with the Intels of the world and the NVIDIAs of the world and all of that, you really get a very different perspective than when you see a board already built, hmm. or even if you're building your own with pies or whatever. Um, it's just a completely different world. But the other way one could go is to Think about this, Rob, and I know you'll love this one, Rich. Refactoring the mainframe. Refactoring the mainframe. Well, when you when you say refactoring Mm -hmm. the mainframe, uh, you know, there's a there's the hardware component, but the the refactoring of mainframes for me is all is is more about uh, software data representation logging all of those all of those things that just make one's life miserable <laughs> uh, that you know we've had to live with and 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 I bear scars uh from uh you know 20 and 30 years ago so yeah um yeah, the days, my days was semaphore cheating that was my job about, yeah when you talk about refactoring the mainframe, well, what, okay, maybe what, refactoring what is mean? not the right word. Oh. Reimagine a main, reimagine an IBM Z. Yeah. Instead of all your racks, and run them t- tandem and parallel. Yeah. Wouldn't that do the same thing as, gee, I don't know, an Amazon for a hell of a lot less? You would hope same. so. You would hope so, but I, I guess the the question there becomes one of all right, are you, you know, it how once again, how does it play with the rest of the world? And that's that's still I mean, the fact that you know, IBM is still making Z boxes, yeah. they've got the ZOS, and it's it's still these things are still siloed. They're they are they are they uh, remain they remain isolated from 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 the rest of the world. And you would think that um, this. I mean, 
I, and I, I admit I'm taking I'm taking this on as a as a big deal because of uh, mm -hmm. the data orientation. The fact that you know they just live in different data silos is is just painful for me. Uh, okay. Well, I'll send you the latest announcements. Okay. Uh, but I I have always thought, and I thought this years ago with web servers, but I have always been of the opinion that they will, at a certain point of hyperscalability, make a comeback. Because oh, I yeah. do not know, I do not know of anything more efficient for compute power than a mainframe. No argument. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can hyperscale your heart to your heart's content, but there's a limitation. <laughs> You're never going to yeah. get the same horsepower that you can get with a mainframe. So, I gee, I don't know, chat GTP4 on mainframe. <gasps> what a novel concept. That kind of makes my yeah. brain work. Right. But, but to me, what you hit is, and I'm, I own this as my spin, but it's not the fact that the systems aren't interconnected now. They're pretty well connected. But the management, when I when I hear silos, the thing I see is all these management silos. And yeah. you know, it's it's the the challenges you get, mainframes are managed by one team and isolated and put on an island. They don't have the same management operational capabilities and the same software installs and all that stuff. It's a totally, there's no standardized process. So somebody incorporating a mainframe into their environment has to have a team that specializes in that work. Yeah. That's the, um, that to me is, is where the problem is. Yeah. Hey, hey Rob, this yeah. is Sasha. Good morning. Hey, Sasha. It's very Good morning. nice. Very nice to, to meet you all. Welcome. I'm not going to turn my video on um, because I'm, no I'm still in my, uh, you know, my early morning uh, call clothing and uh, hairdo. <laughs> but I feel like I, you, you, all, you guys have all conspired uh, to for me to speak up because obviously, you know, I do work for IBM. Um, so I might be biased. Uh, and we um, I just bi wanted... biased opinions are the best opinions. Go ahead. <laughs> just put them on the table. We'd love to hear them. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, with regards to silos, I don't think that's true anymore because mainframes are managed through Ansible, just like you would uh, manage any other infrastructure. And they run Linux and they run OpenShift, which is Kubernetes. So the 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 landscape uh, on mainframes, at least on the IBM mainframes, has really changed in the last you know four or five years. And uh, incidentally, I talked about this in my latest podcast episode that I'm plugging. And not plugging here, because <laughs> I, I, literally, <laughs> I literally said exactly that, that mainframes are just shells for clouds that are waiting to be populated. You can run at extreme scale on, uh, on a Z16, um, and you use your standard development methodology to roll out cloud-native applications onto OpenShift running on ZOS. That is absolutely not a problem. So, Sasha, with, with, quick go ahead, question. Rich. Just a quick mm -hmm. question about making about when I think about silos and I, I, I everything you've just said is absolutely true. One of the things that still becomes an, a, an incredible issue is um, is data. And when I talk about data, I'm talking about 
structured data and the data logging, the, the data logs, moving that back and forth in a in a dynamic way or making it interact, make it, making it interwork with the rest of cloud native uh, technologies is still horribly painful. You can, you can migrate, but migrate is not really what I think we're, we're after. We're after interwork. We're after interconnect. And I, this is one place where you would think that using Linux, using OpenShift as some sort of a, um, I'll call it a bridge, call it a call it a, a a translator for the enormous amount of data that now resides in Z systems around the world would just open up an amazing amount of viable, really valuable uh, data for machine learning, for, you know, everything that we're, we're talking as being data driven. And I haven't seen it. I haven't seen IBM come yeah. up with it. I haven't seen the Folks on the other side, the AWSs and and Microsofts, you know, make a move on that. What do you, we, we what do you think about that? Yeah, um, very Tell good me. point. And IBM actually did come up with a solution for that, specifically implementing a data fabric that integrates the the Z mainframes with the rest of the data world. And um, what is that? What is so that it's, called? It's Cloud Pack for Data. Uh, Cloud Pack for Data is essentially a a, yeah, okay. a suite of applications, or a, it's a, it's a containerized application that um, makes available a data fabric where it doesn't matter anymore where your database sits. It can be you know accessed uh, from from anywhere, and data isn't being moved or copied or replicated. It is okay. I would say it's brokered. So it's uh, it's okay. proxy to to where it lives. So it's proxied, and and in that sense, it, you you literally can take a some arbitrary cloud native application with a with TCP IP, mm -hmm. plug it into, and, and it starts to look like network detached storage, or what? It it's it starts to look like as if if it was a native database. Yeah. It's called yeah. Cloud Pack for Data. I'll, I'll send you. Okay, I'll put a link in the chat. That would be that would be great because I have I have looked at Cloud Pack for Data you know, when it first first appeared on the scene when I was still doing some work with IBM, but I haven't I haven't touched base with that. And I haven't. How do you have a sense of how well understood that is in the industry and what the uptake is, the commercial uptake is? Um, so I'm a security guy. Um, so data is, is not my forte, I have to say. Okay. So my honest answer is I don't really have hard data on it. Um, mm -hmm. but it is for me as someone who is, you know, who has a different subject area to me, this is a really appealing story. 
right? It's yeah. it's a uh, it's like oh wow, you can do this kind of a thing. Um, so I, I think the, the 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 interest in the market is definitely there because data yeah. is the lifeblood of any organization. I mean, at IBM, it's it's really a focus. If if you own the data or if you manage the data, you're irreplaceable, right? Yeah. The the place where I'm still hearing this really loudly, this kind of complaint, is um, folks like the financial sector, the big banks, mm-hmm. who you know are heavily invested in Z and mainframes, and at the same time, almost all of their new development is being done in cloud native more cloud native styles of applications and you ask them okay how are you gaining access not migration how are you gaining access how do they coexist and you get kind of a blank stare and and it's kind of an embarrassed red faced and that that says something to me. Well, is it because they haven't quite gotten to virtualization yet? Or is it because they need the Rob stuff to get them there? Mm. I think that's part of it. I think uh, I think so too. Part of it, well, part of it is, you know, the, the one of the one of the prices you pay is having to, you know. It's the blessing and curse of of Kubernetes. I mean, basically, right. you you bring on Kubernetes and you've created um, management management issues that you know just don't. <laughs> you just <can't>. move them. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think there's there's serious improvements in portability with Kubernetes, and I think that there's a lot of application management if you invest in it. I I had a I had a question back for Sasha though because I. What a a computer that runs Linux and standard applications um, with standard management footprints, I I have trouble. I, I at that point I start being confused about what defines it as a mainframe. It is it is at that point a a, a server, <laughs> um, maybe a particularly powerful one, but it's a server. What's what's why are why is that? We're talking about something like a front end, you know, kind of. No, I mean, what, what, what Sasha was of a, of a front end server. What's I mean, because because you're 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 saying that there's some data data integration problem with with it. I mean, if it's running Linux as you know as its primary operating system and it's running Kubernetes as its primary workload generator, I, except not. maybe having a different processor. I I don't. It's not. I, I don't I don't see why that's right. And maybe what we're describing as a mainframe is, you know, that that's not how I think of of and maybe yeah. this is I need to revisit my definition, but I wouldn't consider that mainframes. I would consider that a, a specialized, you know, Linux server, a specialized server. And and that's really what it is. You can buy a Z16 with essentially two operating systems. So they exist in two versions. One is running just plain old Linux, okay. and the other one runs the the legacy uh, operating systems. Or you can actually you can they can coexist on the same same machine as well. 
uh, in partitioned operating systems. Um, and you're absolutely right. In essence, a mainframe nowadays is just a, uh, it's a hyper-converged um, uh, compute platform that right. looks to the end user or the developer not, not any different than uh, a local Kubernetes cluster does. Mm. Which is great news because it standardizes application development as well as all of the principles of cloud native uh, development. Um, you have the same CI/CD pipeline. Um, okay. You have a different binary. Yeah, you don't have portability on the container image, but uh, that's a that is a that's configuration a file issue. What yeah. about what about what about reaching back to all of the legacy? systems that have been built on kind of native zos and you know the i, I guess the the question there is is it is it in fact a proc you know can is it still a, a matter of proxying the data in order to make it available uh mm -hmm. to the rest of the world or is it you know to what degree do you at what point do you kind of move to the next step beyond proxying? It's, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> I, well, the fact, what? Because hmm. I, I mean, Isn't some the point, fabric maybe this able is, to handle that? Go ahead, yeah. I mean, Sasha, I have two blue stripes on my left shoulder. So, I mean, I started at IBM and then I went back a second time for more punishment. But then again, like I'm, I'm listening to what Rich is saying and I'm having, you know, visual flashbacks of, of not only ZOS, but AIX. <laughs> and I'm trying to understand why these are still issues or why you would look at it even as Z16 as a Linux, you know, a, a fancy, a bougie Linux server. <laughs> as opposed to we'll always get the prize for word, we'll always get the prize for word choice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't help. You know, because to me, I'm looking at essentially what is it doing for the enterprise and especially a bank or healthcare, or financial services, or pharmaceutical why, yeah. manufacturing. Why, why would, uh, why would they I choose, follow the ELM stuff. Why, so like, why would they choose that instead of buying a standard server? To oh, oh no, well, that's a, the that's opposite. Choose that as opposed to buying the standard server. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th th there's easy answers for that, right? Uh, so one is density, one is manageability, one is reliability, one is you can buy it with specialized uh, AI coprocessors, right? Uh, so there's there are very good reasons to to invest in mainframes. Still, are there good reasons to invest in other types of compute infrastructure? Yeah, of course. It really depends on your use case. But the as you know, as a you know, I'm just a um, an I, IBM. Um, boomerang. So it's only my second round at IBM. And I started out with configuring front-end processes, right? So <laughs> I, I've been at it uh, for a little while myself. So SNA doesn't exist anymore, but I, I actually learn all that stuff. Yeah. And I think um, horses for courses, right? Right. Right. And, but I, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, if I'm spending a million dollars a year on AWS, 
and I have issues that are unresolved by AWS, and I have security concerns that are unresolved by AWS, why not just take a good payment plan and buy a Z? Mm-hmm. Have it where I can control it, where I can secure it, where I can maintain it, and know that I can use wonderful Rob stuff to help me manage the rest of my environment with that. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes a way better ROI argument than, you know, burning money in in rental stuff, which is basically what cloud is. Um, That's exactly what I talk about on my podcast <laughs> because what's the name of your, that, what's the name of your podcast just so I, I, it's open cloud, it in, yeah, oh, okay, open okay. cloud infrastructure i just started cool. this so I'm, I'm in the process of launching if anyone wants to be a guest uh, i'd love to have you on uh, and it's uh, there's a lot of talk about cloud repatriation and there are mm-hmm. companies 37 signals uh, and, and uh, <laughs> you know ahref so there yeah. are uh, you know, people who look at their cloud bills and say, like, why does egress f- for my S3 data uh, cost so much money? Or, um, you know, why is compute infrastructure actually so expensive? And did you know that AWS has a 30% margin on uh, cloud infrastructure or in compute infrastructure? You know, wouldn't it be nice to have that yourself? If, um, if Amazon wouldn't be in the business if it wasn't profitable. They're they're, yeah. they're ruthless about neither that. Neither of us would be, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, profit is not a bad thing. Uh, no, it, it's it, it's not. The, the 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 talk we started riffing on made made the point that for a long time Amazon um acted and and promoted the mythology that uh cloud was a low margin yeah. um business. Um I think they still which I think people have recognized is not true, especially now that we're talking about price more. But I think they still promote a mythology that it is crazy hard which to it is. run infrastructure. Um, at scale. Mm-hmm. I, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. At, at Amazon scale, it's it, there's they, they're crazy hard things. Since nobody else on the planet needs to run at Amazon scale, <laughs> yeah, um, they've they've actually they, they are solving problems that only they need to solve. Um, I mean, there are still hard problems, like to Joanne's point about the distributed infrastructure of having a lot of small machines is is a hard but solvable problem. The reason it's we're we're having trouble, in my opinion, the reason we have trouble solving it is because we have a really bad time collaborating mm-hmm. on actually solving it and propagating the solutions. We keep solving things um, in bespoke ways. Because uh, the, the unit of work is not is not particularly different between these companies, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the, the equipment's not different. The The unit of understanding is, is, I think, what is the difficult part, right? So in order to run cloud services, you can't really come up with uh, parts of the solution, it needs to be a coherent solution uh, that encompasses the whole stack, which is something that I harp about all the time. Mm-hmm. It's in- required to understand the stack from bottom to top in order to provide a useful cloud service and uh, operations. And that's that's very, that's the difficult part. That requires a lot of knowledge, experience, um, and to operationalize something like that, 
there's a big lift. Yeah. And if I go back to why did Google actually come up with Borg slash Kubernetes, mm-hmm. my theory is it was a specific attempt to um, erode Amazon. Um, because if your workloads are portable, which is kind of the Hmm. The key feature of Kubernetes, you can move it around. Uh, if your workloads are becoming portable, they also become less sticky with Amazon, right? So if you no longer require EC2 infrastructure anymore, um, if you can you know, do multi-cloud, if you can do a hybrid cloud, then that's bad for Amazon and it's good for Google and for everyone, really. I Yeah, I you're, you're taking... There's, there's... Two or three steps in that that I I would break apart from that that which is I think useful for this conversation, um, right? The Kubernetes stuff is not board directly. It was written by the board team as a as a rewrite project. Um, it's not there's there's no board code. There's board expertise in, in Kubernetes. I do agree with you. I think that it was a attempt in part by Google to. Um, have a plat a, a neutral API that would create some portability and it's been relatively successful for that. But the Borg, the Borg designs are actually much more about um architectural decisions that in my once been this is my understanding and layer on with my opinion on what they did and what other I've I've seen and helped other cloud providers do is that the Borg uh, the Google designs were brilliant in the fact that they were much more commodity designs um, than anybody had seen before, including Amazon. Um, and so they needed a, an abstraction layer that meant that individual pieces of hardware could would not disrupt, loss of individual pieces of hardware would not disrupt the operation of their infrastructure. So it's a classic distributed programming problem because they were designing with much less um, resilient infrastructure than anybody had done previously. Um, and I think to, to an extent still. Um, and so they needed a way to abstract that out so developers would not um, code in the the hardware dependencies that we get in. Even with VMs, we get into hardware dependency. Um, and so, so that's the, to me, that's what, 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 and that, but that required them to design a programming methodology for deploying infrastructure that, you know, isolated the hardware. And then they had to teach people how to use that, um, is my understanding of, of what, what Borg was doing. There was a ton of bare metal automation and designs and fault tolerance and in, in that they built into the underlying stuff. It's not in Kubernetes in any way, shape or form. They called it the, yeah. um, Oh, I talked to Joe beta about this. Um, the lizard brain, they actually have a service under, under board called the lizard brain. Yeah. I think it was Paxos. Absolutely agree. <laughs> and I think what's <laughs> like unique, yeah. what, what's unique about, um, Google uh, or Kubernetes in the end coming out is the, the symbiotic relationship between the design of a Google data center and the hardware that we're using and oh. the, the underlying principles of the Kubernetes architecture, because those two are working together really nicely. And that is, I don't think it's a co- coincidence. Google was at the forefront of figuring out 
let's use DC in the data center. Let's make uh, hardware really cheap and replaceable. Let's make it as simple as possible. And, you know, I think we would all agree that Kubernetes probably isn't as simple as possible, <laughs> but it it yeah. really supports a, an architecture that is not so resilient. Oh, definitely. And and I, I think that oversimplifying a platform is the it actually makes the platforms uh, very, you know, not adoptable. Right. There's a Kubernetes is in a sweet spot. I used to draw a graph of, of this because at the time of Kubernetes adoption, we had Mesos, which is mm -hmm. incredibly complex and flexible, Warm. Mm -hmm. too complex and flexible. We had uh, Swarm, right, which was overly simplified and restrictive. We actually had Cloud Foundry, which is also very mm -hmm. restrictive. Um, there was a couple other app. app Sarah, I think, or there was a couple other things in the mix of that. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. And Kubernetes hit that sweet spot of enough worked out of the box with an opinion, but not so much that the system, um, you know, was turned into a straight jacket. Over. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I agree with you. I, I think one of the things that, that is lost too much is that Part of that is a recognition of the underlying, you know, that that you're isolating people from the infrastructure. Um, it's part of the reason why I think it makes a good portability story mm -hmm. um, because of that abstraction. Um, but isn't that, I mean, if I kind of roll back this part of the discussion a little bit yeah. to Sasha's point, it is undermining the other cloud providers. Um, because you now have the way around them. I mean, there's. I, I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago before I got sick, and their whole thing, and it is a bank, it's a Canadian bank, and their whole thing was, we don't know how to get the tentacles out of us from AWS. Right. Yeah. Because we, we realized we're spending way too much money, way too much time. It's far too difficult. And for some of the stuff that we have ported, quote unquote, we don't need the overkill because we don't have the manpower with the brain power to deal with that overkill. And we could easily move some of this elsewhere. They were even considering Oracle at one time. <laughs> And so Oracle Cloud. Oracle yeah. Cough, yes. Cloud. Yeah. Cough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get with the program, Rich. Right. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh yeah. And they were even considering that. So I I I understand. I think every hyperscaler is coming to the point where they're going to have to find a way to deal with the fact that a lot of companies are talking about repatriation because they've gotten these million dollar bills for two years now and, or more, or I would, you know, in this particular case, they were paying literally three quarters of a million per quarter last year. That's a lot of yeah. cash yeah. for, as they deem it, rental. I mean, they don't even liken it to SaaS. They liken it to, I rented, you know, like I rented an apartment, I burned the cash, same thing. 
It's an so interesting. This, it's an interesting. What, see how things have, are turning from that perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to add a topic in the backlog because we're we're getting near that time um, to actually say does uh, does Kubernetes um, uh, enable cloud migration? That's a good. One. Yeah. Also, if actually, you repatriation, permit, I'm going to go all the way to repatriation. I think you should take it there. Um, I was I was loaded for bear this morning. Um, yeah, to yes, talk did. about to to talk about well, no, well. Oh, we should have. <laughs> God, I missed the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, SBV that that could that could take us. Yeah, yeah. That those are those are still those are the echoes still reverberating. No, uh, it, the book the book club. There were two books that I wanted to. Oh, good. Draw, yeah, please, because to... there's one I wanted to suggest too. Let's let's close okay. on that. So which one? Uh, two actually. One uh, is uh, Data Cartels by Sarah Lambden, and it's a very it, she is. She started out as a law librarian. She is a librarian in kind of library science, library technology. Um, but what she does in data cartels is a, a really an incredible piece of research about the what has been unspoken uh, and unaddressed um, with all of the that bad mouthing that's been done to the hyper or to the hyperscalers regarding their use of personal data, their mismanagement, so forth, so on. Um, she identifies, in particular, two real villains of the piece, and that is Reed Elsevier, um, which also owns uh, LexisNexis. And the other oh, okay. is Thomas and Reuters. Thomas yes. and Reuters. And uh, uh, all you have to do is read the first chapter. And, and there are some there's some pretty good summaries of it, but it's cool. It's uh it got me really it it, it roiled me. The other book, <laughs> okay, the other book that I, I really am enjoying is uh call is uh recently put out and this is a um a book by uh Alfred Spector, Peter Norvig, Chris Wiggins, and Jeanette Wing called Data Science in Context. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a revisit of you know data science, machine learnings, and so forth. Really, really well done really well done i mean they're all good thinkers they're all good writers and um i think they started out thinking this would be a kind of a small book and you know just they they kind of give a uh, um kind of a state of affairs uh after you know how many years these guys have been involved it really it is it's quite quite excellent so cool data science in context by Spectre, Norvig, Wiggins, Wing, and um, the other one is uh, Data Cartels Data Cartel. by Sarah Lambden. 
Cool. Uh, I I was going to add um, John Willis's new book, Investments Unlimited, which is a compliance uh, novel, business novel. Ooh, okay. Um, I let's. I I have May fourth as the. Oh shoot, that's going to be a crummy day for me. Uh, I'll make it work. Um, because it's Dev it's DevOps days. Sorry, it's not. Uh, yeah, but Donald, which book do you want to talk about first? I'm sorry, say again. Which 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 book first? Well, I mean, we're at nine o'clock, and you know, I'm. You want to you want to do the 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 data cartels? Data cartels is the one that that you know, just got steam going out of my ears. So, yeah. That sounds like a great one. <laughs> Let's pick that one so, for May 4th. Is that all right? So May 4th is our first book club? Yes. Cool. Okay. We'll, we'll talk We'll talk about that, that one. And then we'll, we'll do, I'll put Investments Unlimited uh, sometime in uh, probably in, july june july and we'll i'll get i'll look rope willis and and tell him he's got to show up and and run the run the discussion that would be great that'll be fun so i might i might see if if mccrory will join us on the data cartels discussion because i know it's that's a that'll make him interested too cool i'm looking forward to this i think it's going to be fun i mean our discussions are always awesome but today's was all like just riffing on uh brian cantrell's talk so doesn't take much to get us going on a good topic. <laughs> well, we'll hope he doesn't mind. Right. <laughs> and, and I think Sasha, we're going to. I think. I think I'm going to start. The, the, the rebroadcast is going to start after some of my more choice commentary. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. and Sasha, thank you, thank you for joining because this was very helpful and it was really informative. Thank you. I appreciate no, you pulling us into the mainframes. Thank you for the conversation. It's really enlightening. Cool. Thank you. Everybody have a great weekend. You all. And St. Patty's Day. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. It's amazing to me how we can take such a simple topic about data center infrastructure design and then really piece apart where the challenges and blockers are for people repatriating workloads or looking at things differently, even questioning, you know, what mainframes are and how they're built. Um, These are the types of conversations we love to have. I hope you will come and join us and be part of the conversation. We'd love to hear new voices and new opinions. Uh, You can find out our whole schedule and agenda at the 2030.cloud. Pick a topic, come in and join the discussion. Oh, and don't forget to read the books now that we are doing a book club. Uh, Data Cartels by Sarah Landon's our first. Um, and then we've got a couple others in the queue for you to read if that's your interest. Um, come check out uh, that. Be part of those discussions, too. I'll see you at the 2030.cloud. And thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building 
software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.